Badwater is a race uh, that is from the lowest point in the Northern Hemisphere. It is, uh, it starts at the Badwater Basin. There's basically a beautiful, beautiful salt flat. And you have these mountains that, that uh, climb up to basically about uh, 13,000 feet at Telescope Peak, which is only about 12 miles from the base of this lowest point in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's really dramatic mountains. Hey guys, welcome to the sixth edition of the Christian Ultra Podcast. I'm Christian. Today, uh, the guest is Harvey Sweetland Lewis III. Actually, I got a message from him earlier. We recorded this interview a few days ago, and unfortunately, the race that he was training for, which is Bad Water, has been cancelled. So, Harvey's going to go along anyway with his crew, and he's still going to run that. So, you can follow his journey on his Facebook. Today's interview is pretty awesome. Harvey talks about how he got into um, running his first ultra, his history with the 24-hour event, and also bad water. And we also touch on his um, attempt in 2018 for the fastest overall time on the Appalachian Trail. So Harvey's going to come back on and tell us about how he got on at Badwater and then we'll have like an Appalachian Trail, um, like a special. So enjoy the show. Oh, and one last thing as well. If you guys enjoy this and you want to listen to it again, go ahead and, as they say, smash that subscribe button. And also, don't be afraid to give me a rating. I'd love to hear your feedback. Enjoy, guys. Harvey Sweetland Lewis. So my first question, Harvey, is where does the Sweetland come from? <laughs> that is a great question. It's actually my great-grandmother's uh, last name. Uh, so in order to like preserve it, they named my grandfather uh, Harvey Sweetland Lewis. And so I'm the third Harvey, and, uh, and I have a son, in fact, who's Harvey as well. So we kind of like uh, kept, I've got all last names. Harvey's the last name, because that's like a last name of a relative back in time. In fact, the Harveys came from, the, uh, from uh, England. And we actually, my father and I went back there in 2001. I was studying in Cambridge University for a summer. And I loved it there. It was absolutely amazing. And we actually went to a small town where the Harveys were based. And we even went and saw Harvey Tombs. So that was a pretty amazing experience. That, so I do have some family history that uh, stretches over to England. Well, that makes perfect sense. It's nice to you know carry on the name of your grandmother. And um, it, it's a great sign of respect, I think. Hey, Harvey, where were you born? I was born in Wheeling, West Virginia, which is kind of like a, a middle of nowhere place in, in America today. It's kind of a, actually my fiance and I, during this COVID-19 period, we kind of take an opportunity to go and see some places like domestically that are within our region that we hadn't seen yet. And we went back to a place where I used to live in the Allegheny Mountains of Pennsylvania when I was 
up to like age six and uh, we crossed into wheeling and wheeling is uh, just like a very, very kind of old industrial town for America. Back in uh, the 1800s, that was kind of like San Francisco of the, uh, of the country because you know, they, the, the settlers hadn't moved westward yet. So there's a really beautiful suspension bridge there. It's pedestrian only right now, um, but Wheeling, West Virginia. Kind of the, it's wild and wonderful is the state's slogan. And did you grow up there and where do you live now? Yeah, now for like uh, most of my life after that, I've actually lived in Ohio and I live in uh, a city called Cincinnati, but I kind of divide my time between Cincinnati and a little tiny town called Circleville, which is near the state capital, Columbus, which uh, in fact, they're actually considering renaming the capital of, Col uh, of Ohio. Uh, they're thinking of renaming Columbus to another name. Uh, with all the, uh, the major uh, movements that have been happening uh, since uh, the last few weeks mm. with George Floyd. And just that, you know, the people are thinking, do they really want the city to be named after uh, Christopher Columbus? And maybe there's some um, more, um, maybe some more honorable people that they could consider with Native American past and things like that. Yeah. So kind of interesting. But yeah, so I, I'm spending a lot my majority of my time now is in Ohio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ne places, names of places get changed. That's just, uh, you know, yeah, that's, how, interesting. that's how the world works. Um, right. and, and how old are you? I'm 44. Okay. If I yeah. can remember right. <laughs> Sometimes you forget. I always forget a year. I'm 43. So like we're, we're yeah. pretty much the young man. Young yeah. Man. Yeah. And, um, I know that, I read that you were actually a car salesman. I was back in my early days. So it's been half a lifetime ago. But in my early 20s, I spent a couple of years as a car salesperson. And it was, you know, I really enjoyed that experience. I wouldn't want to do it forever. But I really liked the place I worked at was a good place. I felt like it was reputable and the people uh, they treated customers well. I, I made a lot of friendships. In fact, I'm still friends with uh, a good handful of the people that I met back then. I haven't worked with them for 20 years, but we've maintained a friendship. So that's kind of nice. Have you had any other kind of crazy jobs? Because that's a, a that has a funny stereotype to it. I'm sure there's some comedy films with Will Ferrell as a cop. Yeah, yeah. You... <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because I, I was known as the only car salesperson that didn't have a car. <laughs> so I would actually like uh, ride my bike or run to work every day. And I mean, that doesn't exactly work with customers. <laughs> like it worked. I did pretty well. But, uh, you know, sometimes I'd be like, well, do you really want this car? Is it really going to be? <laughs> <laughs> they're really good economic choice you know like uh but no overall i i did really enjoy it other jobs i've had well i'm a teacher so i've been teaching now uh for 20 years and so that's okay. uh been my principal like uh career but i also had the opportunity to work with my father for uh, maybe three years uh doing manufacturing and so that was kind of a neat experience earlier in life 
And I've had a million other jobs from like working in a grocery store to, believe it or not, I was a bouncer for a few months. <laughs> I've done all kinds of crazy things. Um, the, the thing that I guess I learned, I, make it pre, I appreciate teaching a lot. You know, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to work with kids. And I, I learned it. I love, I, I actually enjoyed a little bit of, of every one of those jobs I had. And some of them I, I taught me that I didn't want to do them forever, but uh, they were good life experiences and they made me appreciate and, uh, being a server. Also, I've worked in catering for over a decade. Uh, and, and that was a nice experience too. I always loved working the weddings and uh, having an opportunity to celebrate with people and make an event special for them. So that was really, really neat too. Do you, I also read that you actually run commute, like you run to work or you ride your bike or you walk. So is that, and that's, that's been going for quite a while now as well. Yes. Uh, since, uh, so seven years. So for seven years, I, every day when I, when I go to work at teaching, it's about five kilometers away. Uh, about 90, probably 97, 98% of the time I, I run back and forth to work. And then uh, there might be occasionally a few, two or three times a year where I, where I might walk because I beat myself up so bad from a race the day before. Or yeah. Uh, yeah, I had an injury after the 24-hour world championship this year. And I had a run streak that was four and a half years long. Maybe it was even like four years and like nine months. It was almost five years. But I, I really uh, pulled my, I did, I did a number to my Achilles. And so I just knew, it, I could tell, like, you know how you can, sometimes you just know it, you can feel. And I just felt like if I ran on my Achilles even one mile, like, which is my goal, like, I always try to run at least a mile a day. Uh, I felt like I could possibly pull it worse or do some, like, long-term damage. So in that situation, I actually, uh, I actually biked to work. And it was really like, it was still hard to bike to work. It wasn't like hard on that injury, but it was just, it was a little hard. It was a little hard, but I biked to work a couple of days and then I, I gave a week off uh, and I started back. So I, my run streak is going again for maybe like seven or eight, maybe eight months now, whatever it is. So what do you teach? Uh, what age are the children? Yeah, I teach uh, American government and financial literacy. And my group is age 16, 17 primarily, uh, be 18 occasionally. So the students take it their junior or senior year of high school. So one of their two last years of high school. Any kind of standout stories from students, either funny ones or homework or stuff like that? Oh man, there's a million. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I teach at the School for Creative and Performing Arts. and It's a really special place. I, I love teaching there. Our student population is very diverse. Uh, the school was founded in 1973 uh, as a result of like a, 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 the um, Brown vs. Board of Education. And so the school is founded around the arts to create more diversity. So we have a really amazing, diverse student population, which I love. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the kids, we do a lot of push-up contests. Like we'll do like plank contests and things like that. Uh, I have a running club as well. And uh, they, they've, um, one of the senior pranks one year, they, 
they uh, they took all my chairs and they they put them everywhere in the building. Like they they hit them all over the building. So I had to run around the building and find all the chairs in my classroom. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's a good is, it forced me to do some more stair work and stuff like that. But we have a good time. Yeah. Okay. So it's nice to let people who are listening to the podcast, you know, know about you as a person, your background, and let's go on to um, running. So when was your first marathon? How and, and and when was your first ultra? And what was the feeling once you'd run further than marathon distance in your first ultra? Yeah, my, well, my first uh, marathon was actually when I was 15. And so it's kind of interesting because I actually was, uh, I don't know if you ever seen the film Goonies, but I was like Chunk yeah. and Goonies. So I was Chunk. I, I was definitely like the, the big kid in the school and everything like that. And I, I like somehow like decided I was going to start running cross country. I think my sister did it. And so I went out and did the cross country and I never was really good at it. I always usually finished like towards the back of the group. Like I don't think I ever finished anywhere but the back of the group, but I always enjoyed it. And so uh, my freshman year of high school, I remember going back to like um, on Saturdays they'd have, or Sundays they'd have like uh, cartoons in America. And we only had like a few channels back then. So I remember I always loved to watch cartoons on the weekend and then every year they would interrupt the cartoons for this Cleveland marathon. I was like, this is so annoying. It's like getting interfering, interfering with my, my cartoons. But, but one year I was kind of watching it. I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. I cannot believe that person is still running. Like they're still running. They keep showing these people and they've been running miles and miles and miles. So I think it just kind of planted a seed. And I was like, I'd like to do that. And I told my eighth grade coach, I think in cross country, I had started running that year. That I was like, uh, you know, I kinda, I'm kind of curious about the marathon. Have you ever done that? And he said he did it one time. It was the worst thing he ever did, and he would never do it again. And never, do, never think about doing that kind of thing. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So then I got to my freshman year of high school, and the thought kind of came up again. And fortunately, my mother. She's kind of always like uh, endorsing or a lot, trying to find a way to help let me do what I want to do back then. So I decided I, was, I want to do that marathon. So she took me down to Cleveland and I just registered. I didn't even train for it. I like decided I want to do it like a, a week before it happened. And the furthest I'd ever run was eight miles. So the other thing is I, I was living with my mother at the time and no one else was at the house. So I had to take the uh, kind of train from Berea down to Cleveland. And like, that was my first experience with that at 15, which doesn't sound like a big deal right now, but back then it just seemed like a big deal. And I remember the, on the train, there were these people that I met some marathoners and they said, well, you gotta put band-aids on your chest. And I thought like that was back in 1991. So like, there wasn't like all these like, types of you know, products you can put on your skin to like keep it from rubbing. And so I, I thought they were messing around with me. Um, but anyways, I ended up putting like band-aids on my chest and going down to that marathon. And it was uh, the first eight miles were, were not that bad. And then I got to like mile 10. I was like, what did I do? 
<laughs> so I ended up uh, meeting up with a couple other runners uh, that were running like slow like me. And we just walked and ran, walked and ran. And we ended up um, managing to somehow finish a race. And I remember when I, that was, when I saw the finish line, it was like, I cannot believe I finally made it there. And I, I really have to thank those people. I actually, I, I ran into a guy, I even remember his last name, Voltron. He was the guy, one of the guys, that older man who was with me in that Cleveland race. And I still don't even, I have never seen him since. But Mr. Voltron, I remember him like just teaming up with me. So anytime anyone, you guys can help somebody, that would be incredible. Uh, yeah, so then uh, that moment was huge for me because then I, before that, I was really struggled in school. I like got mostly D's and that's it. <laughs> and then after I did that marathon my freshman year, my, my sophomore through senior years of high school, I, I basically got all A's and B's because it, it taught me that you can do whatever you want to do if you are like determined enough to do it <laughs> and before that i didn't believe in myself i didn't have the self-esteem or i didn't think it was possible i thought that it just but then I, that that moment it taught me that and then the ultra marathon was uh i had a, a good friend a, a good friend audrey schroeder uh she's now in her, her late 70s and she has alzheimer's um but she happened to uh know that i did that marathon and she was in her 50s, and she happened to uh, be friends with my family. And I was visiting my, my dad in Minnesota. And she's like, oh, I'd love to take uh, Harvey to show him this ultra marathon. So she took me out to see this 24-hour race in uh, the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, in fact. And uh, they do this race. They raise money for inner-city kids to go to college. It's called the Fans Race, and it's still happening to this day. And so she took me out to that, and I – went and did a loop or two with this guy. And I remember we pretty much walked the whole way. And I just thought, man, what in the world? Why are these people out here doing this for 24 hours? <laughs> what is wrong with them? But that must have been probably around the same age time. So I was either probably 15 or 16. And again, it planted a seed. So when I was 19, uh, I had uh, a very, um, my life had changed quite a bit because when I was a freshman in college to a, a sophomore in college, my mother had a stroke. Uh, I ended up uh, getting my college girlfriend pregnant and having a son. And uh, I ended up having to go and work full time. And so in the factory. So like my life changed dramatically between my freshman and sophomore years of college. And so when I was uh, in Minnesota uh, working full time, um, working in catering on the weekend, working in the factory on the weekdays, waking up and taking care of my son in the middle of the night. Uh, I needed something. Like there's no way I could afford to go travel somewhere and climb a mountain. So my mountain was doing that 24 hour race. And uh, it was very special. Like that really deeply impacted me because that race was uh, the old school style of ultra marathoning. And uh, the, the, some of the people that I ran with in that race are still very good friends of mine today. So it was, uh, geez, almost 25 years ago. In fact, it was 20, it was 1996. So 24 years ago. <laughs> so how far did you get in the 24 hour? Cause it's yeah. based on time. Isn't right. It? Yeah. So my goal was to keep going for 24 hours. I, I had no idea how far I would make it. 
I ended up making it 82.24 miles. And the, the, the whole time I didn't sleep and I kept going, uh, walking or at first I ran more, but I think I walked a lot more throughout the whole thing. I felt like I was going like a thousand miles, <laughs> but, uh, the last uh, 40 minutes they had back in the day, they had this course. They actually didn't have like electronics. So they actually had lap counters, you know, like, I don't know if uh, you guys uh, have heard of this <laughs> back in the day. So they would, there would yeah. be like 10 people that were at the race and they would be assigned to like eight runners. And so like every time you pass them going around the lake, they would like check you off as a mile or whatever, or two point one miles whatever it was and so yeah. the last 40 minutes of this race they had uh you go out and back and it was like 400 meters so you go like 400 meters down 400 meters back and it, in that 40 minutes i i just really like had this incredible feeling of like uh wow i feel better now than i felt even at the start and i started like going really fast for me back then it felt like an absolute sprint so that that kind of sealed the deal and then by the end people were clapping and cheering we're all supporting each other but uh there's uh, a fellow that i met through that his name is ed Rizzo, and he would be great to get on the show, show one day but he is now in his 80s and he's still like doing these 24-hour races and uh i learned a lot from him he actually uh was an alcoholic into his 40s and and his doctor said that you will live uh less than 12 more months unless you drastically change your lifestyle and so he stopped drinking and he started running and i guess running became his new mode of uh his new addiction but it was a healthier addiction <laughs> so i met him and then another buddy of mine danny ripka uh it's, it's funny because we uh we've shared so many life experiences and he's such a, a a good character but uh yeah so i uh, i really that that left a positive impression i really like the people that um, the community is really positive mostly in ultra running and it's uh, uh it's like that whether you're in the uk or you're in like japan or you're in america like it's you know there's a very good uh, energy force it seems to me that running that first marathon was the beginning of believing in yourself yes and and I also had that same experience when I ran my first marathon. It was the discovery that anything is possible if you try and yeah. if you want to achieve it. So would you would you recommend people to go and run a marathon then to, to tap into that inner self-belief? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's unless you have some sort of a really bad injury you're going to do something damaging to your body like it's it is really a nice sort of a pilgrimage like right now we're talking as the summer solstice you know i think it's it's in some ways it's kind of like a part of like the the evolution and human of the human uh of, of homo sapiens like i mean there was a time uh where you know, our survival depended on great movements uh you know whether it was for food or or uh adapting to different environments so yeah i think you'll you'll get a lot of enlightenment uh through doing that sort of experience and i would definitely encourage 
maybe maybe do a little more than eight miles of training beforehand but but, <laughs> but yeah a hundred percent encourage you to definitely do that definitely consider like doing an ultra and yeah for sure cool well i'm sure there's people out there who have been inspired by that and will go and run as you were inspired by the cartoon break uh of the marathon right you know interrupting your cartoons right. <laughs> was that the actual same was that the same marathon that you ran it was the cleveland back in the day it was called the cleveland refco marathon <laughs> yes it is so funny. that's good yeah Th that's so cool that you ran it because of the adverts you know right right um I ran my first marathon because I saw an advert in the local paper. So uh, different, but similar. That's neat. Was your first, oh, so yours was a Discover Marathon. Where is that located? Like, where was that? So it was my, my story is it was my uh, town of birth, Wolverhampton in England. Yes. And yeah, it was my first marathon and it was also my 100th marathon. Really special. And I won it that year as well. And you won it? Yeah. Wow. Your first uh, ultra was a 24 hour and, and how many 24 hours um, have you done? How many events? And that is a great question. Honestly, I, I'm not so good at writing down exactly how many 24 hour races I've done. Okay. Uh, I've, I've run 84 marathons and I think somewhere around uh, 70 ultras. I have to look it up exactly. But so I'm imagining like 24 hour races, probably, uh, probably 40% of that has been 24 hour races. So I've run a lot, like, and I've run, I've run a 24 hour race. Uh, I mean, I started running them 24 years ago. So I've run at least one on average every year. And, you know, some years more than one. And then there's been a couple years back in the early 2000s where I didn't run one. I really like to honestly run a diversity of races. Like I like uh, cold, I've run a really cold race, the Arrowhead 135 run um, trail races like this year i ran uh the uh uh long haul 100 and i won that race uh down in florida uh, it's a trail race so i do trail races as well where i really excel is is the 24-hour race and i really excel in bad water um you know that's where the 24-hour race i've, I've had the benefit of of um being on the 24-hour USA team and racing in the, the national or the the world championship, uh, the last five races, including this last fall where we ran in um, Albi, France, and that that's really a special experience. And, and England has a phenomenal team as well for the 24-hour race, but uh, that that's the race I've just uh, I, I'm I've been pretty strong in because I'm I'm good at uh, pacing. I've done a lot of marathon pacing, and that's one of my specialties is pacing. And to do well in a lot of these ultras, you really have to pace yourself, but especially the 24-hour race, that's really a key ingredient. And uh, Badwater, I'm just so drawn to the nature. Like, I, I love the desert. And the uh, race uh, really, really gra gravitated to me when I saw this documentary. Uh, it was back in like the maybe 2007 and it was called running on the sun. So if you guys haven't seen running on the sun, it, it's a classic. <laughs> it's got, um, it's got a British runner in there too. Uh, in fact, a couple British runners, uh, Chris moon ran it. I don't know if you guys, you guys probably have heard of Chris moon. 
Yeah, he has. Uh, he's a army veteran of the UK, and he lost his arm and one leg in Mozambique in um, a mine um, detonating detonating a mine. Um, but uh, his story is phenomenal, and just uh, seeing all the the runners that come from around the world and have these really just impressive life experiences um, and stories that they they come to you know experience the hottest desert in the world so it has a little bit of romanticism to it but uh that place just draws me in and i i actually really love that you have a team environment for that both of those races right i i like the 24-hour race i i like it because we have a team with the world championship like we yeah. really bond um this year we were able to win the gold for both the men and the women and a lot of that had to do with coming together as a team um in belfast uh we didn't do our, our greatest uh, on the male side on the women's side they won um but i thought we could have done better in terms of like coming together as a team and really um pulling each other forward um but uh in badwater we have a team of four other people that they basically leapfrog you and they hand off like aid and drinks, but it's it's such a nice thing having a team because you don't really always get that in a lot of ultras. You might have a couple crew members if you're doing a you know, UTMB or you're doing like a um, sort of like trail race, but uh, is is not maybe as in depth as in bad water. When you finish the race, your team actually joins you for the last quarter mile, and you actually finish the race together. So they're not allowed to join you until the last quarter mile, but, but I don't, it, well, they sort of can't. Like you're allowed to get after mile 42, you're allowed to have one person run behind you at any given time. But the reason everyone finishes together is because it really is a race that, that is a team endeavor. You've been on the American 24 hour team for, did you say four or was it five years now? Since 2011, so five international races, so, wow. so about to, I'm, I'm, I'm the longest, I'm the oldest one there. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the oldest, but I've been in it the longest. So like, I think the next per, there's been, uh, Olivier, he's been on the team maybe three times now or four times. I think the next is maybe three or four times. Yeah. So, so I, I I've been on the team the longest. And what is your best 24 hour performance in terms of distance yeah so my best distance believe it or not it's kind of funny because when i was 22 you know i did that fans 24 hour race where i ran 82.24 miles and then this last fall in uh albi i ran uh, 160.619 miles so it's i almost doubled my distance at twice the age and I'm not done yet. Like, I really think that it's possible to go further than that. And so our next uh, world championship will be in 2021 in uh, Romania. Yeah. So, okay. And we're, we're real optimistic that we'll be beyond this COVID-19, at least to the extent that we'll be able to um, come up with a plan that's safe for everyone and, and participate have the, the world championship next summer so you've actually run 24 hour events all over the world 
Yes, yeah, all, all over. Uh, most of them have been in the U.S., but I, the world championship races have been in, like, 2011 was Poland. Uh, then we had uh, the Netherlands. Uh, we had Italy and uh, France, uh, also Belfast. So, Are the uh, world championships every 12 months? We've actually made them. The IAU has made it every two years uh, just because it's easier to put together a uh, well-organized event. So back in time when they first started doing these 24-hour world championships, there was a period where it was every year. But now it's now staggered, so it's every other year. And like uh, host cities have to like uh, basically petition to have uh, to be the host country two years in advance. And that way it gives them time to organize and plan for the event. And uh, I kind of like it that way because, for example, you, you just had Carl Meltzer on here. And I'd love to hear about your conversation with Carl. He's a pistol. Like he gets fired. He's definitely fiery, right? Oh, yeah, Carl Meltzer's just, actually, I found him such a really nice guy. I asked him a question at the end of the conversation, and it was, what's the difference between failure and success? And he said, uh, well, it's a bit cliche, but happiness. And it was, it, and I said to him, sometimes, you know, it takes someone to say something for you to remember. Um, you're right, you know, and, and bring you back. And it's like you just said, um, when you finish that first marathon, what stayed with you was the belief, or sorry, the realization that anything is possible. And and when you said that, honestly, I'm, I almost started crying because I was like, oh yeah, that's exactly how I felt, you know. And um, But no, I think Carl's a real, just good guy. You know, I, I just enjoy, enjoy I, I think a lot of the ultra community are, are full of different characters and good people, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I got to meet his father. Like his dad actually came uh, to meet up with my father and I on the Appalachian Trail. And uh, his dad was really nice. Like his father was super nice. Yeah, uh, I think he brought some food and did a little like uh, he just talked with us, hung out. It was really nice. I enjoyed him. A funny thing that Carl says uh, about his father that his father's his father's fastest marathon time is two seconds faster than Carl's. Wow, really? That's, yeah, that's so his, <laughs> yeah, his, fa his father ran two hours, 48 minutes and, uh, sorry, 48 minutes and 38 seconds. And I think Carl ran two hours, 48 and 40 seconds. That's I think it will take a few right, seconds. Right, right. Hey, um, so that's pretty, uh, oh yeah, last question on the 24 hour. What's your average minutes per mile when you ran 160 miles? Yeah, so with that that race, it was about keeping at about an 850 pace. So uh, I think to get exactly 160 miles, which I was trying to get over 160 because I was kind of, something that had been sitting there for some time like when i was in italy in 2015 i got to 158 something almost to 159 so i'm like geez i'm so close i'd really like to get to that 160 mark so i averaged about 850 pace 
And I remember I, I, you know, I had to go to the restroom. So you have to factor that in there, like maybe once every couple hours. Uh, and then I also would kind of stop and stretch for about 45 seconds, maybe every couple hours as well. And so I did probably have some miles that were like around 845, but I was trying to keep right around 850. And I don't think I had many miles that were even like at a 905. And I don't think any were above 910, except for like maybe if you're factoring in, like I stopped for 45 seconds. So, you know, I was pretty even like around at 850 pace. And like, I could tell, like, if, if I would go to like, say I went to 835, you know, I would use a lot more energy than at 850. So there's some sort of like sweet spot there. And even like, maybe if I went to like 10 minute mile, well, maybe that actually might take a little more energy because uh, it's just a different like stride. And my stride is more efficient at 850. And I, I think I had paced, uh, I paced a marathon prior to doing that race. And I think it was Columbus. It was a Columbus marathon I paced. And I think I was assigned like a, a, a slower time than I typically run. And I kind of like, uh, I noticed I was more tired than I wanted to be. And I'm like, geez, I'm doing this 24 hour race in like maybe a week or two. And I'm like, I'm getting tired running a marathon at a nine or a 930 pace or whatever it was, maybe it was 10 minute pace. I can't remember exactly, but I remember it was a slower pace than I was going to run for the 24 hour race. And I was like, well, geez, that's very interesting. There's something about efficiencies and finding the right efficiency in terms of your stride and where you can like um, just go the quickest with the least amount of energy. So that was kind of something playing with that. And with Badwater, I'm already like starting to like contemplate that because that's just two weeks out. So I have to think about, you know, my pace and like, you know, there might be a couple or some runners leading ahead of me, but I have to be very conscientious about what pace I'm going at because it's more important to, you know, preserve your energy and have that energy for the last you know, 30, 40 miles than it is to like be per se in the lead or something like that. Yeah. Well, let's go on to Badwater then. I, I, I could, I have a bunch more questions, but let's move on to Badwater because I've got even more questions. Do you want to talk about what Badwater is for maybe anyone who hasn't heard about it? Yes. Well, actually I have my shirt on here. This is a, one of the shirts you get for like a finish, finishing shirt. Uh, but Badwater is a race uh, that is from the lowest point in the Northern Hemisphere. It is, uh, it starts at the Badwater Basin. There's basically a beautiful, beautiful salt flat. And you have these mountains that, that uh, climb up to basically about uh, 13,000 feet at Telescope Peak, which is only about 12 miles from the base of this lowest point in the northern hemisphere. So it's really dramatic mountains right with this salt flat. And it's the hottest place on Earth. So the hottest temperature they, they've ever recorded on the planet uh, was 134 degrees uh, back in 
19, I think it was like 19, uh, 13 or something like that, 134 degrees. And uh, it became a national park in 1994, but they had been doing this bad water race um, going back to uh, the, the, before like the, the 70s. Um, Al Arnold was the first runner who did this. And he kind of had the same sort of idea that you and I had with the marathon. He, um, he, he thought it was possible to go from bad water to the highest mountain in the lower 48, which is Mount Whitney, which is only 146 miles away. And so he thought, well, geez, I'm going to actually do this. And no one's done it before. So he, he set off for it. Uh, I believe the first year he wasn't successful. So he had to go back, do different training, try new techniques and new, new equipment. And he made it. And then so after that time, initially the first few years, there were just like a couple of people that participated uh, and did it. And then it kind of grew into a race. And then people started running this race. And, uh, and it's been like one of the most famous ultras you know, going back in time because of its, its history of being kind of renowned as the, one of the toughest races in the world. And so you are... Uh, you basically go up over three solid giant mountains in order to finish. At one point, it finished at the top of Mount Whitney, uh, but they changed that back in the 90s because they were concerned about um, there. There's some some areas uh, getting up towards the top where if you were delirious, you, you could die. Um, so I think the park the park service said, "No, we're not going to do that anymore." And so they, they finished at the portal of Mount Whitney, which is at 8,700 feet. And so that's been the historic uh, finish for like over a quarter of a century now. And it's a 135 mile race. But a lot of people actually after the race, the next day, two days, two days later, they'll go and finish the last uh, 11 miles up and summit Mount Whitney. And Marshall Ulrich is very famous for that. He's run the race more times than anyone. And he's been doing the race. I think this is uh, maybe his 30th year that he's he's been running um, or going up to Whitney. Uh, so it's it's definitely a pilgrimage for many of us. For me, this is my 10th year running the race, and uh, my fiance Kelly will also be running it this year. So it's her first year running the race, and I just love the race. I, Chris Kosman, who's the race director, is he puts on a very good race. I mean, I've run uh, the Spartathlon. I've run races all over the world. Um, the UTMB, I'm sorry, the, the, the Marathon de Sables with you. Uh, all these races. And I would say I'm probably, honestly, I'm probably most impressed with him as, the, as a race organizer. Uh, you know, people follow the rules. Uh, it's, there's a lot of, like, uh, expectations about safety. Um, in terms of like uh, reflective gear at night, I mean, in terms of like uh, only uh, um, certain rules that the, the crew must follow. And they are very strict about enforcing that because we want to ensure that the race is going on, you know, after we're gone. We'd love to see the race happening 100 years from now. You know, so it, we feel like there's a tradition with the race. It's a special race. And to have the privilege of running through the national park is is really special 
it's a very, it's personally to me, I've been all over the world. I've, I've traveled to a hundred different countries. That was one of my ambitions to go to all the countries in the world. I'm, I'm halfway there. Um, I've been to a lot of national parks and Death Valley National Park is my favorite park in the world, in the whole world. So it's a, it's a very magical place. So this is your 10th year and your first year was, um, uh, 2011 yes good good yes yes that's uh that's some going that's uh every single year bad water and you've actually won it as well is that your fastest time the winning when you won no my fastest time was in 2016 when i came in second uh behind uh, pete kostelnik and so that year i think i ran and pete set the record there was the record until last year when the um japanese uh runner won and, and set a new record um but it's my fastest time was around 23 hours and i think 30 some minutes uh in 2016 and i've, I've uh, unless i've had something crazy going on I've, I've usually done pretty well in the last like six years i've I've been on the podium uh, four of the six years. In 2018, when I did the Appalachian Trail, you know, following the footsteps of Carl Meltzer, uh, you know, I ended up like uh, finishing the AT and only having five days before Badwater. And so that year, it took me a little longer to run the race, but I managed to finish. It was also the hottest year we've had, so that was kind of wild. And then in 2015, uh, that was the year after I won the race, I got a little crazy. I thought I could just sprint the whole way. And after about 30 miles, it caught up to me. <laughs> so uh, it ended up uh, having some other surprises that year. I ended up uh, proposing to my fiance, my girlfriend at the time, Kelly came out to surprise me. And I had no idea that she was coming out there, but uh, I just got, uh, I guess, um, it just uh, decided, then and there, I was going to buy a ring in the little town of Lone Pine, and I proposed to her at the finish line. So the race has uh, a, a real important part of our lives for Kelly and I, uh, having that experience there. But I, I really love the people. Uh, I love the, the place. I love the people. I love seeing the runners who are, who are very serious about getting ready and training. Uh, you know, I see I've got some good friends in Portugal. And I actually met my, my good friend, Carlos Saw, in Port, uh, from Portugal. He won the year before me. And we've started a business where we take people on running and hiking holidays to Portugal. It's called RunQuest Travel. And so I've met uh, some of my best friends, close, or closest friend, closest friends in Badwater. And uh, so I, I don't plan to stop doing it anytime soon. Like uh, Dean Carnez, as he said, 10 years, that was enough. I think his wife made to make make a deal that ten years and that's it. Uh, but uh, I plan to keep going. To, hopefully, when I'm like eighty, I'll still be out there and running running bad water like bad water band. We have bad water band. Tell us about you've got bad water coming up in a couple of weeks. What has your training looked like going into it? Um, are you injury free and how are you going to approach it? Well, fortunately, I'm injury free. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, I I did in in May. I was trying to do this uh, kind of odd sort of challenge. Uh, I just came up with it um, where I was running uh, a marathon each day, but I was also trying to make it a faster marathon each day. 
So I made it to about 14 days in and then I did a number on my Achilles and then I like eased up on that. So after that, uh, there was uh, something I always wanted to do uh, with COVID-19 here. I had originally planned to go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro this summer with my friend, Greg Armstrong, who's also was on the 24 hour USA team. And we're also gonna do some work with the wells there in Uganda. Um, but unfortunately our trip had to be canceled. So one of the things I always wanted to do was make this kayaking journey from our little town of Circleville all the way down to Cincinnati. And the longest I've ever kayaked is 15 miles. Uh, but I ended up making this journey and it was absolutely stunning. From Columbus to Cincinnati, it was like 245 miles. And I kind of fell in love with the river. You know, was at, there, there was 98% of it was green space. And I saw over 40 bald eagles. So, I mean, things like I had never even seen a bald eagle in Ohio, my state of Ohio, until 2018. And they're making a comeback, which is nice. Uh, they've been making a comeback. But so I did that. Um, I've also uh, been doing um, just a lot of... Uh, well, actually, hold on. Go into a little bit more detail. Were you camping? Did you make any fires? Were you like <laughs> cooking by the fire? Tell me about that kayaking trip, man. That sounds cool. Yeah, it was really neat. Uh, it's not like what people like. Some people were asking, like, "Well, why are you doing this?" It's like it's about <laughs> a month before Badwater, or six weeks before Badwater, five weeks before Badwater. What, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? But uh, it, it was really something special. Uh, it was like an endurance event because I wasn't trying to go the very fastest I could, but I was out there for long days. So like the first day I did 30 miles and then the next day I did 44 miles. I camped out and what, the other days. Just, just to go back, and what is 30 miles in time duration? Yeah, so... The duration was, uh, the first day was like seven seven hours. Uh, okay. But uh, my longest day was 61 miles. And that one, I think it was about probably 13 hours. It was a long day. Yeah, so I would mostly be out there for like maybe eight, 10 hours, 12 hours. Um, and uh, actually, that the first two, the first day and the last day were shorter days. But the middle days, I pretty much kayaked from when I woke up until like six or seven p.m. So it was pretty long days, and uh, it it was charming. Like the river, there I I didn't see one boat until I got uh, all the way down about 150 miles into it. Like I didn't, and I never saw a single kayak the whole journey for 245 miles. And this is on water that is not like uh, that super fast moving. It's like class one. So it's, it's moving at like maybe two miles per hour. It's not like there's little tiny rapids, but nothing you're going to like, like get crushed on. <laughs> so, but it was cool. I got to go through a lock. Uh, we actually have a lock system in Ohio where you on the Ohio river where it lowers you down. And they were really happy to have me. They had said like they don't get many kayaks and it was totally free to use and they're open 24 seven. So they actually lowered me in uh, or put me in this giant, like giant, like lock and then lowered my kayak down. And the first day I went with a friend and then the rest of the time I was on my own. 
So I, I did feel like uh, it was good training because I was in hot weather and I was moving, like even though it was more my upper body and my core, you know, I was moving for like most of the day. And uh, yeah, and it just kind of like makes you, uh, it kind of toughens your, your, uh, your mental, your mind, mental, mental force. Yeah, but you're saying that you camped and, and you was was that in a tent near the side of the river? Uh, and what was the name of the river as well? The, the Scioto River, it means deer in the Native American language here. And so I, I took the Scioto River from Columbus, Ohio to the mouth of the Ohio River. And that was 129 miles. And so the first night I actually stayed in our little town of Circleville at my home because that happens to be on the route. It was 30 miles in. And then the next day I camped on a little island and I woke up the next day and I did my morning uh, two mile run on the island. And uh, it was about a quarter mile long. It was really, really, really quaint and, and very pristine. Like there were uh, mussels uh, that I hadn't seen before, like endangered types of mussels. Um, just no houses for miles and miles. I mean, I maybe saw like a dozen houses on the river the whole time. And so even though people don't associate the Scioto and Ohio River as being like very clean rivers per se, they're, they're pretty special. You know, there's a lot of wildlife. I saw five uh, coyotes, uh, saw lots of fish, big giant fish, garfish that would jump out of the water. And uh, it's an area that hasn't really been utilized uh, by people very much. There's on the Ohio River, they still use it for big barges that come up and down the river with primarily coal and like gravel and big material like that. But it's not used as much as it could be for recreational. And I found like they're just uh, camped out uh, two nights just along the Ohio River on the, the side of the river. Like there were no houses, no people, no one to disturb. Yeah, it wasn't a bona fide state park, but <laughs> nobody was bothered. No, it sounds really nice thing to do. Uh, when I was in America last year, um, I did a little bit of kayaking and it's a different thing from, um, you know, using your legs to move down a trail. It's a lot more. Yeah, it's a different experience, and it, but equally as rewarding, you know, and, and, and so and so bad waters in so what is it it's two not this coming weekend but the following weekend yes it actually starts on monday and going back to 2014 uh you know there's lots of layers of history of bad water but back in 2013 uh going into 2014 there was a park superintendent who was very strict and uh they basically had a moratorium on the race um and, and what happened was uh, we have a new superintendent of the park now who's very, um, very much pro Badwater and, and for having it. The, the Badwater race, it predates the park itself. Um, but uh, they came up with a, a, a deal in terms of like all kinds of uh, expectations. And like one of the expectations was to start the race when there's a full moon or near full moon because it's more visibility. So we have all kinds of interesting things, but the date of Badwater kind of shifts every year by a week because it's uh, tracking the full moon. So it, it starts on Monday. 
Sunday, and we're going to be running in waves of 10. And so we're, we're very serious about respecting the COVID-19 period. We, we feel like Badwater is an opportunity to be a model for what can come. And I know there's a, a couple races that are happening maybe around this period right now, uh, small races, but uh, we're going to be leaving in waves of 10. And it will be starting on the, in the evening on Monday, uh, July 6th. Do you know what wave you will be in? I don't know 100% yet. Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to have the potentially fastest wave going first, maybe, um, so that we don't maybe pass as many people, uh, or if they will have the fastest uh, projected wave going last. So I'm not really sure. Um, I'm just flexible, and I'm happy to just have that opportunity to be there and grateful for that. So wherever they want to put me, I'm fine with it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it's an exciting thing. It's a race I've always wanted to do. I've seen the, is it called race to the sun? Did you say? Yes. Yeah, there's a running, um, running, the running in the sun or running. Geez. I think I forgot. <laughs> running, <laughs> running in the sun. You know, whatever I said earlier, it was correct. <laughs> running under the sun. Yeah. Yeah, you can actually watch it on YouTube now because they, it was only like, um, I think you could only get it on, it were, there were so many, like a limited number of copies of the actual film. And so now it's been put on YouTube and you can watch it in segment on YouTube if you want to. But I have an Aussie cousin who sent it to me back in 2007 and that like kind of ignited my interest in it. So I actually applied for the race the first time back in 2007. And I didn't get in. I was like, I thought I was going to get in the race, but I didn't get in. And uh, so I kind of put it on the back burner. And then I met a fellow, um, Ian Adamson, back in 2010. And I was giving this, um, like, a, a, a keynote speaker at a symposium. And he was going to the race, and he asked for me to be on his team. And I was, like, just so excited about that opportunity. And so I went out and I was on his team in 2010 as a crew member. And honestly, up to that point, that was my favorite experience ever. Even all those races I had done before in ultras and marathons, like being on his crew was really special. And so definitely I uh, wanted to do the race. And I applied in 2011 and got into the race. I just looked up. I, cheat, I cheated. I looked on Google running on the sun. Running on the sun. There we go. You mentioned Appalachian Trail, and I hadn't really asked you any questions about that, and I've got some questions here. Um, so you're, like, in the top 10 fastest people to ever complete the Appalachian Trail. I think you're number nine, and, and you did a sub-50 day Appalachian Trail. Um, I was going to say, did you base your start date on um, being able to run bad water? So is that why you started quite early? Uh, yeah, it was all on uh, necessity. So basically, I, I taught up to, I think, about two days before that. <laughs> and then uh, I knew I had to go as, as early as possible because I wanted to also run Badwater, which is like a, a streak for me. And I, I, I kind of like streaks. And essentially, I do like the running streak. I've got a streak with uh, marathons and uh, my local marathon, the Flying Pig Marathon. And bad waters become really important to me. So, yeah, that's why I decided to do it. Like, as soon as I could get out there, 
We did postpone it by one day, though, because we had this crazy, crazy, crazy rain. We had a tropical storm that moved in, and it was still raining like cats and dogs when I started, uh, but there was no other option. It was like, okay, you got to get going. So maybe in hindsight, it would have been better to wait a couple extra days uh, to get started on the, uh, because the first couple of days were really, really, really tough with all the rain we we're experiencing. I mean, I end up changing my shoes every single opportunity and it was just really tough running through all the mud or puddles and creeks. The, the trail became a little creek in some places. You know, to get through that um, shows a lot of, I think, tenacity to get through those first couple of days. Uh, and you also actually had a film, I didn't even know this until I think I accidentally found it, but you actually had a film made about your attempt. Um, how, how long was, how did that come about? You know, how did you meet the filmmaker and who, who, who how did you come up with the idea to film that? Yeah, so uh, the, the filmmaker, uh, Rudy Harris, and uh, also partnered with Road ID, uh, basically uh, earlier that year, maybe it was, um, actually it was the previous fall, we went out to do a little uh, video for Road ID uh, at a beautiful uh, park down in Kentucky. And we were down there, I mentioned to the guys, I said, well, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm planning to do this um, event and go for the record on the Appalachian Trail. And I, I think you guys would actually really enjoy it. And I, I had some confidence in them. I, I, I could tell that they were a really good team. Um, they were very professional. Um, they are good people. You know, I've, I've, been, I've had the benefit of also, when we did the Marathon de Sables in 2016, um, you know, we also uh, worked on a documentary uh, for, for that. And um, it's called Desert Around Me. And it was produced by um, Linda, uh, Linda uh, with I Run for Ultra. And so I, there were good people with that film as well. And uh, so, yeah, Rudy Harris uh, and Mike Trimpey, they, they were guys that they said, yeah, you know, we would like to make this happen. And also Edward from Road ID. It's a really nice company. They're actually based uh, in my town of greater Cincinnati, but they produce these um, bands where it has your personal information on it. Uh, so if anything ever happens to you, you pass out in the middle of like the country and you're running or you're kayaking, you pass out, whatever people find you, then they can see what kind of medical information you need. They can get in contact with your family right away and, um, and so on. And they, they actually have over 30 employees. So I was in greater Cincinnati. So I was kind of like looking to, to help them as well. And thought it would be fun to partner up and make a, a story of it. And so um, basically they just uh, came out four times and they, they followed along and pretty early on, like Rudy, uh, who produced it, he's got a really good eye for a storyline. And so what he decided was he saw early on that really this was a running story, but it wasn't just a running story. It was something more than just a running story. It was really about this relationship um, with my dad and I. And so, you know, my dad, he's, he's, he's a character. He's actually uh, 80 and he's out there in this van 
driving, <laughs> driving this van, this old, old uh, Ford van, all over the countryside, trying to catch me at each intercept, which is maybe like 15 miles for me, but it may take him two or three hours to get there too, because it's in the Appalachian Mountains. And there's not a whole lot of really good maps <laughs> that, that lead you there. So, uh, you know, my dad was really a driving force and helped me to, to, to with every single day. I mean, we would get up at 5 a.m. He would, he would be like, he never said one negative thing the entire journey, uh, helping make an oatmeal, uh, helping it, you know, meet me like at 10 p.m. or sometimes 12 p.m. At, or midnight. And uh, we had a good bonding experience. Uh, so it was a real, real adventure, a father-son adventure. And it was definitely not possible without his help. And so Rudy, Rudy based the story about um, our experience and our journey together. Uh, and that, that's really what makes the documentary special. So it's been very successful in like film festivals at one, uh, and I think um, maybe seven film festivals and made it into like uh, more than a dozen. And so um, originally the film was supposed to come out April 17th and we had a premiere in LA April 13th that my father and I were gonna go to. But now with the whole COVID uh, happening, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the new date will be. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're, uh, we're just patient and, you know, rolling with it. Uh, you know, it'd be nice to share the story with more people. And uh, it was supposed to make it to, you know, maybe 50 markets around the U.S., but also make it into markets overseas too. So possibly it, it might come to the U.K. or London at some point. I got a few questions about the the actual record. So when you set out, you were going the the record at the time was held by Joe McConaughey, also known as String Bean. Was that the record? Yeah, was that the record you were going for? Yes. You know, although he String Bean actually did it unsupported, which is remarkable. Uh, but I was going for the overall fastest time, which String Bean also had at that time before uh, Carl Sable, Sable um, surpassed it, uh, the Belgian yeah. runner. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that was my goal. I learned a lot through the experience. I mean, it, it looks like it would be easy. It, I don't know if you say easy, but it looks like easier than, than it is. <laughs> it's, it's a lot harder than it looks, uh, especially like the trail. So I really didn't, uh, yeah, I have run a lot of trails in my life. And although I'm known for running bad water in the 24-hour race, a lot of people don't realize that I, I love running trails. I've run a lot of races and done well in those. Um, but the Appalachian Trail is really incredibly challenging. It's not like running like a normal dirt trail. Like most of the time, it's going up or down. And when you're going 50 miles a day, you're covering the height of Mount Everest every three days. So every three days, you're running like the equivalent of climbing to the top of Mount Everest, and you're descending that same distance every three days. So imagine like what force that generates on your body. And so I learned a lot about uh, pacing. There were some days where I probably pushed too hard. I had a, a day that I did like 100 kilometer, and I just got a little carried away. Um, I probably pushed too hard that day. 
And I also probably didn't use my pulls enough in the first 10 days uh, because that's something that we don't use very much in America, like as runners. Uh, you see a lot more in France and other European countries that people use the poles. Um, but I had not used a lot of those. I've, I've done a trek around um, UTMB, and, uh, but I've never really used a lot, used poles a lot. So that would have helped me a lot. Uh, having someone there that could actually do, do like a, a physical massage for you is, would be huge. Like, so I know Carl Sable, who won uh, or got the overall record now, he had his friend who's a physical therapist um, along the whole journey. And that really is important to prevent you from getting injuries, or if you get an injury or you're on the edge of getting an injury, can really help to pull you out of it. So I did have um, three friends who are good friends of mine come out but each of the times that they came out for was, and it, they, that was priceless, but each time they came out for maybe like two days, it just wasn't feasible to have, you know, uh, someone every single day there. Um, they helped to pull me out of some deep holes where I was, it, the first couple of days with the rain, that wasn't too bad. In fact, the first four days, I didn't even fall down one time, but after about nine or 10 days or 11 days, I started getting, I got an injury. And then that injury like was there for like three days and I got a different type of injury. I mean, it was like unreal. I was like, geez, I've never really been injured before. Yeah, you know, I just like, I, I, and then to be in an event where you're like, you have to make a decision. Are you guys still go, even though you could be on the edge of injuring yourself in terms of a way that you could injure yourself more long-term. So I had to constantly be kind of evaluating that and thinking, am I doing anything that's permanent injury? So that's the only concern with those long journeys. You have to be so careful. If you're going for a fastest known time to not, uh, you know, you, you, you ride right up to the edge, but to not put yourself where you're gonna permanently injure yourself. And I know Carl, I think he was injured I mean, I think everyone, Carl Meltzer, uh, Scott Jurek, uh, you know, uh, String Bean, he was injured. Uh, we, we all, I think Sable is the only one he pulled it off without injury. And that's, that's really, that, that's why he kicked butt. I mean, he like finished in like 41 days, which is incredible and awesome. Um, but it's also awesome because he didn't get, he didn't have any injury throughout the whole experience. And that's one of the biggest challenges that you experience on that trail is to not get yourself injured. What were some of your injuries and how did you deal with them physically and mentally? Right, so the first one I, can't, I had was uh, like a tendonitis in the shin area. And that was, I, I mean, honestly, I was like thinking, geez, this might be it. And I didn't know what, what, what I could do about it really. Like that was something I'd never experienced before my ankle swelled up like a cankle and i had these um calf sleeves and i i used to love wearing the calf sleeves but uh that kind of aggravated it more because it's like a compression and it just wasn't it wasn't good so um i ended up having one of my friends who is a uh, massage therapist uh ian hughes who's actually from the uk uh, he, he now lives in Cincinnati and he came down and he spent a couple of days there and he like helped to massage the fluid up 
um, that really helped. I also put on a compression sock and I wore that. Um, but the, it was different than the calf sleeves because the calf sleeves, they, they started the compression around the ankle and they went up to like near like the knee. With the compression socks, it kind of helped to further push the fluid up. And then also I like, I walked a lot more. So I, believe it or not, I still was going like about 40 miles a day uh, for the few days uh, with mostly walking. I think I may have only ran a few miles to keep my run streak alive because I kept my run streak alive through the whole darn thing. Um, but that, that, uh, uh, it's remarkable, but in a matter of like three days, I was able to get back to running again. Um, despite that, and it was able, it, like back to my, about my normal. And then I had one day where I had Achilles, um, flame up and I thought, geez, that's going to be, and that actually went away within like a day or two. Remarkably, I used a lot of ice. So every time I would stop at it. And at aid station, I got to the point where I would put my feet up and I would put ice on it, like just for like five or 10 minutes while I was eating. And I would always do that. And then I had an issue with my knee, like my knee like started to give me a little challenge too. Um, but that seemed to go away. Uh, also my feet, like I kept on kicking the darn rocks. <laughs> so that I, I kicked the rocks so many times because you get tired, you're out there, like the Appalachian Trail, you don't just go run six hours or 10 hours. No way. You are every single day when you're going for a fastest known time, you are up before the sun gets up and you are, you go until the, as late as you can handle. So usually you're going to like nine at night. Um, there were a few occasions where I stopped at like eight o'clock just because I I got to a point where I wanted to stay in the van and I didn't want to like camp out in the middle of nowhere and the van, like, you know, the next spot would have been, I would have had to go until midnight. So there were times where I stopped at eight o'clock and then there were, there was one time where I started at 7 AM and that was the latest time I ever started. Every other time was like 5, 15, 5, 20, you know, right with the sunrise. Um, but it, it, I do have one toe now that is kind of crooked. <laughs> So it, it, it is uh, like I have like I, uh, I tore the plate in my, my toe uh, from kicking so many rocks. So it's like I've got a little a, a bit of a toe that goes like this. But the thing I learned, I had to like really put a lot of energy into recovery after that, um, that long journey. Like a lot of runners, they don't really always come back 100%. So it took me about eight or eight months of eating like plant-based foods, um, actually I went and saw a, uh, a physical therapist and they, they started, one of the things I learned is a balance on one leg, which it sounds like, like something super silly and simple, but every day now I balance on one leg, uh, on each side for about a minute and a half, uh, one minute, minute and a half, sometimes two minutes. And like that has helped me to develop more balance for running and also for the trail. And it helped to alleviate the issue I have with the toes being separated somewhat. So I managed to overcome that. Like, it's not a problem today. But, uh, you know, like, I had to put a lot of energy into seeing my friend. I call Mr. Miyagi is Andy Shetterly. He does active release therapy. And I had to do a lot of, like, um, positive things to help my body to get back to 100% after the application trial. Because 
it is so tough. It is so much tougher than it looks. Going 50 miles every day on a flat surface is tough. But to do that on a mountainous structure, I mean, it's rough. I fell down more than 100 times. <laughs> Hey, uh, I could, I've got so many more questions and, and instead of like taxing more of your time, maybe it would be nice if you came back and, sure. and we could catch up again after bad water and you could fill me in and then we could have like a bad water Appalachian trail, um, special. That would, that would be amazing. Yeah. And I got more questions about mental toughness, mental strategies, um, and, and these kind of things. So, and I've had enough of your time. Uh, so how about we end it there and then, yes, I mean, yes. and, and catch up after bad water. That would be amazing. It would be an honor. And it was so much fun talking with you so much fun. And, uh, definitely, uh, love to like reaching out to, to the people listening. And, uh, I'm excited to share what happens in bad water. We'll see how it goes. Good luck in bad water. I'll be watching and, um, and, and I'll catch up with you afterwards and, and let's, let's do that. That's great. Have a great one today and uh, you too. happy stars of the summer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. See you later, Harvey. Bye-bye. I hope you guys got as much from that podcast with Harvey that I did because I really learned that it really took me back actually to when I first ran my first marathon and those feelings of self-worth, uh, self-accomplishment, self-esteem. And yeah, it was pretty special for Harvey to speak about that and how it just turned, turned him into like one of the best ultra runners, you know, today. To win bad water, it takes the best and Harvey's one of the best. So thanks for Harvey for coming onto the show. As I mentioned earlier, bad water was canceled and it was um, meant to be held on the July the 7th. Uh, but now Harvey's just going to run it anyway with his crew. So uh, that's going to be really exciting to watch. And I'd also like to mention about, about me, actually, uh, what I do and what I've got coming up. I've been running for about 20 years. Uh, and uh, 11 years of that has been um, ultra marathon running and over the past couple of years I've started up coaching so online um, ultra marathon run coaching so I have some clients in the Middle East in America I've had clients in Australia and I'd like for anyone who's interested in upping their game maybe running their first ultra uh, whether it's a 50k or they're more experienced and they want to tackle a 200 miler or like go for an fkt or something like that please get in contact with me uh, via my email which is christianultra at gmail.com that's k-r-i-s-t-i-a-n ultra u-l-t-r-a at gmail.com and you know send us any questions that you've got and um, if you're interested in coaching okay so next week uh, there's a very special episode with somebody called Lanny Basham and he's uh, I first heard um, of him when I was listening to Trail Running Nation podcast and they missed a episodes what they did was they both 
chose their favorite guest in the past eight years of running the Trail Running Nation and came up with Lanny Basham. I listened to it and I thought, I've got to have Lanny Basham on the Christian Ultra Podcast. And he talks about mental strength. Um, he's, he's one hell of a guy. So uh, look forward to that for next week. And anyone who's interested in going back and looking at my previous episodes, go ahead and do so. Last week I had Carl Meltzer on. Um, the week before it was Jeff Browning. So uh, they're just, you know, some of the names. Week before that it was David Horton. You know, I mean, uh, there's some really great people who come onto the show. And then finally, again, you know, go ahead and subscribe to the show and also give me a, hopefully a five-star rating, but if not, just give me a rating, that would be cool. And also share this with your friends and that, that will help it to, to grow and for more people to find out about it. All right, have a great week and I look forward to uh, you guys coming back and listening to me and Lanny Basham next week. Thanks, bye.